Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the February 3rd episode of Poets and Muses. We chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can follow us on SoundCloud and Instagram at Poets and Muses, and myself on Twitter at Imogen Arate. That's I-M-O-G-E-N-A-R-A-T-E. Please also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, the link to which you can find on the upper right-hand side of our Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Today, I will be discussing the irony of the new black millionaire and Ode to an Amicable Stranger on the Death of Mary Oliver with our guest poet, Laoshu Clover. Before we turn to our discussion, however, I'm going to go over all the poetry-related events taking place in and around the Phoenix area during the week of February 4th. On Monday, February 4th, from 6 to 9, Café Tuba African Coffee Shop will be hosting its Speak Easy Café Tuba Open Mic at Elzo Hour Restaurant, which is at 7812 North 27th Avenue in Phoenix. On Tuesday, February 5th, from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop at the Chandler Community Center, which is at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 7 to 8.30 p.m., OME and Film Bar Phoenix will be hosting the Improvised Poetry Orchestra taking place at the Film Bar at 815 North 2nd Street in Phoenix. From 8 to 11, King Kong will be hosting his weekly The Underground Experience at 2601 on Central, which is at 2601 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. If you want to sign up for the mic, make sure to get there by 7.30. On Wednesday, February 6th, from 7 p.m., Superstition Review will be hosting a poetry reading with Nikki Finney at the Phoenix Art Museum, which is at 1625 North Central Avenue. From 8 to 11 p.m., Poetic Soul Phoenix will be hosting its weekly open mic at Club Downtown at 702 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. Make sure to get there by 7 p.m. to sign up for the mic. On Thursday, February 7th, from 7 to 9 p.m., Wordplay Cafe will be hosting its open mic at the Nile at 105 West Main Street in Mesa. If you want to attend their writing and performance workshop, make sure to get there by 6 p.m. From 7 to 8.30 p.m., Sozo Coffee House will be hosting its monthly open poetry night at 1982 North Elma School Road in Chandler. On Friday, February 8th, from 7 to 9, Friday Poetry Feature and Open Mic will be taking place at Changing Hands Bookstore, which is at 6428 South McClintock Drive in Tempe. From 7 to 9.30, Shante O'Ryan, Bill Campana, and Jack Evans will be hosting the Caffeine Corridor Open Mic and Poetry Series at 9 The Gallery, which is at 1229 Grand Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up to speak starts at 6.45 p.m. On Saturday, February 9th from 7 p.m., our guest poet, Lausche Clover, will be starring in the Vagina Monologues at the Third Street Theater at 1202 North Third Street in Phoenix. You can purchase tickets for the play on the Phoenix Center for the Arts website. On Sunday, 
February 10th from 10 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., Lauren Drexler of Gen Society will be hosting the second Mesa Prototype Project Neighborhood Walk and Poetry Workshop at the Mesa Urban Gardens, which is at 212 East 1st Avenue in Mesa. From 2 p.m., at the Third Street Theater, our poet guest from this week's episode, Lausher Clover, will again be starring in the Vagina Monologues at 1202 North Third Street in Phoenix. From 6 to 9 p.m., Infuse Open Mic will be taking place at the Phoenix Center for the Arts, which is at 1202 North Third Avenue in Phoenix. Sign up for the mic starts at 5.30 p.m. And now let us turn to our guest poet of the week, Laoshu Clover. Hi, Laoshu. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for coming on to our show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Wow, I don't know where to start, really. I guess in thinking about myself as it relates to poetry, I think of myself as a public health educator. Um, I, I wasn't always a, a public health educator, I just kind of fell into it. But in my heart of hearts, I think that I want people to have the very best life that they can, mm -hmm. and that's my way of, of making that happen. I think that um, my desire for people to know how to prevent and treat things like domestic violence, HIV, um, depression, diabetes is kind of stemmed from that, and you see that in my poetry. Right, right. I do. I do. Speaking of your poetry, which poem have you brought to us today? So today I'm going to read The Irony of the New Black Millionaire. Okay, great. If you want to read it, and then we can talk about it. All right. The irony of the new black millionaire. Black dreams born out of nightmares. She joined the new class of the black millionaire. Black boys riddled with bullets. Lord, no. Black lives riddled with bullshit. Answers, no. Black moms riddled with guilt. She don't know. What else she could have done to keep her black son from a life of danger? And they dare tax her anger? Now she is grieving but a new millionaire. Black wealth acquired from black death. She's dollar rich, but black child bereft. Blue lives go unfettered. They lie. Blue shills tried and acquitted. Blue lie. Blue man group all vetted, while mom lies her poor black child to sleep. For the cold hard grave to keep. For their killing pleasure, she is given treasure. One less black man out there, but mom's a new millionaire. Thank you for reading that. It's such a heart-rending poem. It's unfortunately describes a phenomenon that's just happening too often. I was talking with another guest poem on another episode where he reminded me that, you know, this is not something that's new. It's just that we're hearing more about it now. So what inspired you to write this poem? Because it is a public health problem, isn't it? It definitely is a public health problem. Um, in terms of statistics, it's really difficult. It has been difficult to capture the amount of black lives that have been lost due to police violence. Mm -hmm. And um, we've always known, of course, we know that blacks are about 13% of the population, and we've, we've been able to narrow it down to maybe 25% 
of the people who were being killed were black, and particularly black youth. But Mm -hmm. there's a new public health model that is being researched about two years ago, started to be researched, um, and looking at the years of lost life Mm -hmm. as a way of capturing this kind of actuary position of how lives are lost. And when you look at it from a public health model, it's up to like 50% of people of color who have lost life potential, Mm -hmm. which is very different than the way that we were capturing numbers before. Right. And so in looking at the potentiality of life being lost, it makes me sick and I had to write about it. Yeah. I remember years ago, I was, I forget where exactly in Harlem, it was a museum, and they had a deck of cards of notable African Americans. And I was reading through them, and I remember seeing these scientists, well educated African American folks who, because of prejudice, were forced to go to other countries, contribute their genius, their talent to other countries. And it feels the same, except on a even more permanent scale. They can't contribute to anybody's wealth and, and future, uh, their own especially. It, it really is very sad that this continues to happen and that we don't treat this more as a public health problem because in the media it's not talked about in that way. Yeah, in the media, it's uh, we are only being able to have been able to see more complete pictures in the media just because of how prolific cell phone usage is now. Right. And so, as you said before, this has gone on forever. Right. I believe the last lynching occurred somewhere in the mid-60s, and mm-hmm. that was its own form of violence and, and control. Right. Um, and so there's always been this violence against black people, whereas before it would be said and it would be denied, and whose word are you going to take? Right. Now you have video to support the allegations. Right. I feel like social media nowadays is almost like a prophylactic. Yeah. And the fact that people are taking out their cell phones and recording interactions serves as a preventative measure, though it's very saddening to know that that is needed. That's an interesting way of putting it, social media as a prophylactic, that we would need this shield, this barrier, this protection against peacekeepers of in our communities, against law enforcement right. in our communities. Right. It is, and we should be able to trust the people that we invest our tax dollars in, and also, supposedly, in principle, we invest our safety, but Mm -hmm. for certain segments of population, that's not true. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. It's really not true. I think that what I write about in, in this poem in particular is how instead of being protected it's turned upside down so there are the lies and the acquittal based on the lies and and you have the the blue wall of silence and you have blue protecting themselves and what you end up with is a black youth most often being shot and mm-hmm. a black male youth at that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and nothing happens to the person who shot this person despite the fact that they have been shot in the back or despite the fact that they were running away or despite the fact that there were 16 shots in, mm-hmm. in the back yeah. but money is paid yeah. for that pleasure of killing that person. Yeah, yeah, and that was really a powerful line we said for their killing pleasure and although although we know that case by case there are, there are police officers who 
very much regret having done that, but still in the, in the spur of the moment, there's such heightened or maybe unconscious fear of a skin color that when it comes that they choose to pull the trigger. It's really difficult, as we spoke about offline before, we know that the policing is a very stressful job. At the same time, there's got to be something, first of all, acknowledgement of the white scale on which this is occurring, but also there's got to be ways in which that these occurrences could be prevented through psychological testing because it's such a stressful job. Yeah, no one, I I don't believe that any of the policemen who have shot these young people woke up that morning and said, I'm going to go shoot a young black man, make an entire family grieve for the rest of their lives and deprive a young man from his usefulness in years. But there's something very primal that happens when you're chasing, when you're in a hunt. There's something very lower brain that happens when you're in the chase and when you're being chased. And so... Black men are often accused of running away when they should stop, but you have to understand what the fear that they carry with them. And then you do have to understand the mentality that policemen are using when they are going out there and then treat whatever trauma might be happening or treat the instinct to kill based on race. We know based on studies that there are people who instinctually, when they have the choice of who is a bad person, white or black, we know that instinctually there are people who choose black more often. These are good people. These are people with families. But we know that there's something that's going on in the brain. Let's talk about that. Let's work with that. Right, right. And as we were discussing before, it would be great if psychological tests could be implemented periodically because it's such a stressful job, because there's so much trauma involved. A PTSD could be happening because of the years that they're putting into the force and also overtime and lack of sleep. All of that affect decision-making. So even for somebody who's not bred with bigoted thoughts, it could still happen because some biases are not in the conscious. We might not even know that we have that bias until we are forced to confront it. Indeed. I think that we see that play out when we see uh, others outside of those who identify as white putting on those blue uniforms. So we see that the value of black life is not just not valued among policemen who are white, but also Uh, Just across the board, black young men are more apt to be shot by other policemen as well, not just white policemen. Yeah, yeah. I remember there there were some both white and black officers who arrested a bunch of people and put them in a van, and they were cuffed, and then they were roughly driven the van, and somebody ended up dying, right? And that was police of different colors, including African-American police. So it's almost like an in-group, out-group divide that happens when the uniform gets put on, even though these are supposed to be public servants. It's true. I know that in Baltimore, one of the cases of police brutality, there were several black police officers who were involved in that. And you see, in reference to the poem, there's a lot where I concentrate on the blue, the blue. Mm -hmm. So the blue lies and the blue lie. And for the listeners who aren't able to read the poem, lie, L-Y-E, 
is something that we are familiar with in the black community as something that relaxes our hair, something that straightens our hair, right, something right. that straightens it all out and makes it acceptable. Right, right. Well, Elias is also used as a... Um, <laughs> not that I know this from a personal <laughs> experience, but from watching movies and such, used for body disposal. So it's very appropriate in both Thank you for sense. putting that disclaimer there. <laughs> I feel like it's me that, you know. <laughs> you know, I sound so sinister and everything. I feel like it's great that you put that in the poem. And I thought about it from the perspective that I just talked about. I'm glad you brought that up because as soon as you started talking about it, I was like, oh, yes, yes, it is used as a relaxer. Mm-hmm. So this is And really- a body disposal, which I hadn't thought about when I was reading. <laughs> and you see the use of that word, the use of, of the words in the poem were really kind of intentional. Mm-hmm. And that was one. Mm-hmm. Where if you're reading it, you can see it, and and it may make you go look up. What? Why would lie be there? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it does, and I think it's very apropos and for the sound, especially for a poem that needs to be heard or should be heard. It definitely continues to stress on the idea of lying and also making something what it isn't. All of these contextual elements go into one sound. It's really wonderful. I would like to ask you about the line, and they dare tax her anger. I think I have an idea of it, but I would like to hear from your perspective. It makes me angry even thinking about it that for so many reasons when a black young man is shot down in the streets and left to lie in the streets like a dog, the people, whoever the people are on comments, will often say, well, well, it's her fault. It's her, why is she angry? Why is she angry about this? If she had done a better job, if she hadn't been a single mother, if she hadn't been on welfare, if she hadn't, if she hadn't, if she hadn't, and it feels like a tax on her anger. It feels like in addition to her grief, you Mm -hmm. are now putting a tax on her anger that she has to explain Mm -hmm. her anger to you because she has lost her child that she may not even have access to the body for a period of time. while they are investigating. And so it's this black mother does not even have the right to be angry about her black son being killed because so much blame is being placed on her for her her child being killed. Right. She's being put in a very defensive position. And you think of any death, a family, usually when you come across someone, even if that person is a stranger, if that person tells you, I just had a death in the family, mm-hmm. usually it's not like, what did you do? But that's not usually the reaction you associate with it. Whereas this particular kind of death, these wrongful shootings are absolutely associated with that and compounded by the impersonal nature of social media as well. People feel like they could just hide behind the screen and not purposely hide, just that sort of removes that humanity and people do things that are very much out of character, you would think. Certainly I've had that experience where I felt like I wouldn't say that to that person in their face, but why am I doing this through social media, right? So The peculiar treatment or the peculiar institution of how we treat black people in this country continues even in this day. And so luxuries or feelings that we would be accorded to other people in times of loss 
in times of ordinary circumstances are somehow taken away from black people when they experience these similar happenings like death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The unspoken dehumanization, again, because of a pigment, uh, skin pigment, it must be incredibly frustrating because we are changing. Society is moving somewhat for, for the better, but it feels like so slow. And for some people who feel like they're being accused because they have to face the brutality and the bigotry of people in their own race, somehow take it on as a personal thing and thinking, oh, whoa, whoa, what else do you want from us? Whereas there's no equality yet. It's an interesting thing. As we look at the brutality and we look at how you said things have improved and blacks are able to move into spaces, into places that they have not been before, where they may not be experiencing the same police brutality, we're experiencing something else where white women are calling 911 on black people for doing everyday things, who are doing everyday living. And I'm not sure if they understand that when they call 911, they unleash the possibility of what they view as law enforcement or peacekeepers who might be assassins of the people who they are calling 911 on. And I know that sounds harsh, but things escalate very quickly when law enforcement interacts with black people, particularly in spaces and places where they are not supposed to be, quote-unquote. Right, right. This very estranged dynamic between the police and the African-American community in general makes it difficult for peacekeeping to happen, for normal social interactions to happen. If it wasn't for this dynamic, normally you would think if somebody doing something that's disruptive, we're assuming here, then you should be able to call the police without this extraordinary consequence that will take place and that is likely to take place. Because when you were saying that, it actually reminded me of when I was living in a not very wealthy neighborhood where my neighbors were fighting so loud that I thought he was going to kill his sister. And I had called the police. After I called the police, even though their uncle had said, good, I'm glad you called the police, despite the fact that he didn't call the police, probably because of this dynamic, I was really worried when the police came because they came in a horde. They, there were like two SUVs that came. There were at least four officers. And he was a young black man whom I was saying just leave I kept saying to just leave because I was afraid at first for his sister and then for him I just felt like I needed to do something and the police was the only resource that I knew about not that my own experience with the police had always been positive so to have to worry both for people's safety for which I was calling the police and then for the person who was causing me to worry for that person's safety it's it's sort of very layered and then going back to what you were saying about this seems like a 2018 phenomenon or 2018 highlight of phenomenon of white people calling the police on black people sometimes you wonder if that's the same process that's going through their mind if they thought about that or if they are actually just calling the police because they know this is the likely outcome Sometimes you do have to worry about that, even though we don't necessarily think people's intentions defaults to bad, right? I often wonder about that. I have to just pause and say, 
that I lived outside of the country for a few years. And when I came back in the country, I, I left the country in 2012, and I came back into the country in around 2015. And when I came back, there seemed to be this heightened something that was happening. It was right around that time, I believe, that the Missouri incident happened in Ferguson. and. And so things were just kind of escalating even at that point. I also want to say that I don't believe, like I said, the police wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to go kill someone. And I don't believe that police officers are inherently bad right. or mean-spirited. Mm -hmm. We often see these stories of where they run in and help and they are heroic. And I love that. I appreciate the law enforcement that happens when it is for the good. Right. But speaking to what you were saying, there are times when domestic violence occurs or sexual violence occurs, a rape occurs or something occurs and people might be hesitant to call the police because they know what getting involved with law enforcement might mean for their particular community, for their particular situation. Right, which makes it incredibly sad. It causes sort of this vacuum of safety for the marginalized within the marginalized community. And we are supposed to be helping people who might not be able to, for that moment, help themselves, such as domestic violence mm -hmm. victims or, or rape victims. Yet, because of this prejudice, because of these shootings that seems to target only certain communities, it's a double victimization of these marginalized domestic violence victims, rape victims. It's so very frustrating because, you know, there is supposed to be a resource out there. But it is. And, you know, I mentioned being out of the country for the sake of saying that it felt more intense to me because when you're able to witness policing in other places, when you're able to witness peacekeeping, law enforcement in other countries, and then you come back into this country and you see how it's done, it feels more intense. It feels more over-policed. It feels more under-policed, which is what happens. Black communities are often under-policed or over-policed. Mm. And so in question of when white women are calling on the others who mm -hmm. they see inside of their, their neighborhoods, it's hard to see that someone would just see someone because these calls are not someone actively beating someone. These mm -hmm. calls are not, they are someone sitting in my library, someone <laughs> sitting in my neighborhood park, someone's park. And sometimes it's not their neighborhood. Yes. <laughs> these are the, there was a white resident who was a guy, I think he was calling on another resident and questioning whether or not that, that family had the right to be there. Yes. Despite the fact that they're both residents. Yes. And yes. there's this automatic defaulting to, you are this color, you can't possibly be here. Mm -hmm is the frustration. I wonder if that's what some peace officers think when they stop black youth who are just walking on the street. Walking, using their legs to transport themselves to from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. This idea of not belonging, as if somehow skin color is a passport. It is. I, I can speak that as personally, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I had an interesting upbringing that allowed me not to have much contact with law enforcement in that way mm -hmm. until maybe 2010, I, I guess it was. 
It was the first time I had ever been stopped by a police officer for anything. And I was in liberal Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. I was walking in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It just happened to be the wrong neighborhood for me to be walking in at night. I had on a hoodie. I was coming from the library. Mm -hmm. And the police officer stopped me and told me that I had crossed against the light. And when I complained and said, no, I had the light, he went around the corner, cut me off, got out of his car, put his hand on his side piece, walked towards me menacingly and said, now what did you say to me? I backpedaled all the way. There was no one else on the street and I wanted to live. He saw a hoodie. It was probably enough light that he could see that I was black. He definitely saw that I was black when he came up close to me, and the interaction did not go well. No. Yeah, I, I was just imagining myself in your shoes, and it must have been so incredibly scary to have experienced that, knowing the brutality that happens. And as a woman, the added layer of gender violence, all the possibilities that could happen, you know, all the things that must have been running through your head. I have been in some of the most war-torn places in, in the world. I have lived in different places. That incident with the police officer in Madison, Wisconsin, was the most frightening experience that I've had in my life. Uh -huh to just transition a little bit. I usually choose my poems based on the poem that I'm given by the guest poet of the week. And my poem is related to yours in the fact that there was a gain through a death, but it was not a willing gain. So it's certainly not to the same scale. And, well, I'll just read it and I think our listeners will pick it up why. It's called Ode to an Amicable Stranger on the death of Mary Oliver. That death brushes me softly with the kindness of a stranger, conveying the soul of one spirit to another. I feel touched that the separation of space and time cannot interrupt the relaying of your message, insistent in its endurance, for the light within has carried it far. Now you've shown your precipitous smile to an amorous Hades agape to that charm, defenseless to sequester the beauteous wit in eternity, but partake in the apportionment of your spirit between the worlds, eager for its return. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I read that on my own, and I had a wow. Thank but you. hearing you read it was another wow. It's actually a really nice piece to come to after talking about my piece. Yes. It's, it's very soothing and it's very hugging. It makes you appreciate the beautiful, wonderful, uniting spirits that we walk among. I really appreciate you pointing that out. And you talked about that before as well that no matter where we come from, we share as poets this beauty in words, painting and gathering of emotions through words. Through an artistic creation, we can express our emotions, whether that be incredible pain or an appreciation for someone's work, even though it took her death for me to come in contact with her work. It's really true, Sue. So I did read it before, and it just kind of took me on this journey. And, and actually, one of her pieces is entitled Journey. Mm -hmm. or, and, but it, it took me to 
the row, and, and I've always loved Rumi. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because it does tie in. It does all come together because Henry Thoreau was very much not just a poet but a social justice person. Yes. And Rumi also, we think of him as a love poet, but Rumi also was very justice-minded. Yeah, yeah. I remember hearing a poem of his where he was talking about how to treat a guest, what it means to be a guest or a host of a guest. Yes. Yeah, so lots of social commentary. And so your poem fits on this continuum. Uh, Thoreau has this poem about friends, and again, this continuum where it doesn't matter where you are, we kind of hold each other up across space, across time, Mm -hmm. as poets, as this band of poets coming together, just appreciating each other's work and buffering each other. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to choose this poem, and because it talks about, uh, again, receiving a benefit through death despite not wanting that death to happen. Again, mine's much less in intensity as yours. At the same time, I feel like, as I said, a relaying of messages, and her messages, at least from the poems I did read, she seems to look at it from a very positive perspective. She doesn't ignore the negatives that happens in life, but she also acknowledges the beauty that's within because she talks about nature a lot. Mm-hmm. And I understand you love nature as well. I love nature. I love, prior to breaking my leg in May, I was oh, no. a hiker and a cyclist, and, mm-hmm. and I've, I've kind of switched to water sports, uh, so boating and aqua dance that that's another public health plug black people do get in the water <laughs> yes <laughs> yes good for us uh, yes, yes. <laughs> but i wanted to say regarding your poem i wouldn't call it as intense less intense i would call it differently intense because death is a very intense thing and and this making peace with it this getting a gift from death Right. Is this wonderful treasure that we have that Mary Oliver, all of her works have been these beautiful treasures that she gives to us that, um, particularly women, I, I see in her work so much, there's a piece where she talks about, you know the work that you have to do in your life. You know you have to get to it. And mm-hmm. I think that Oliver transitioning, but mm-hmm. what she leaves behind is still part of that continuum. Yeah. And, and it, there is this beautiful intensity, this heartwarming intensity that the first, the first few lines of, of your poem, if I could get you to read that again. Oh, sure. <laughs> wow. Thank you. That death brushes me softly with the kindness of a stranger conveying the soul of one spirit to another. Yes. So... That just automatically drew me in. I was like, whoa, that it's almost like you find the wallet or a purse of someone that you don't know, and you begin looking at the things inside of their purse to, to of course, call them and tell them that they lost their purse. But of course. (laughs) (laughs) And, And you see, wow, they like the same music as me, or they like the same books as me, or we travel in the same circles. Mm -hmm. And so this is is us traveling in the same circles, this brush, this soft brush of kindness with a stranger that we know because we convey our souls one to another. Right, right. And because poetry is such a 
in many ways such an intense art form. I remember in in one workshop we were saying poetry expresses truth. You know, so her truth is transmitted to us, and we can relate to it. Even though I still know really very little about her. And funny enough, when you're talking about speaking to women, I wrote this after reading her poem Wild Geese. And she says, "You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves." I think it, it's very universal when you pull back and look at it. But as women, when society tells us you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to be responsible for yourself and plus other people's behavior. When you've been hammered all this message. So much for all of your life. When you come to her poem, and she says, "You don't have to be good. You don't have to repent. You just have to let it be. You don't have to take on the world." I I love it. I love the part where she says, "You do not have to walk on your knees." And yeah, and so often it's as you were saying. We do have to do penance for the for the sins of the entire world. No matter who did it, it always comes down to. The woman has to do penance. Well, you were the mother, you were the wife, you were the daughter, you were the sister.、Right. Why didn't you, you make it better?、Skirt. You wore the skirt. <laughs> so we are always doing this penance, walking on our knees. And so I so appreciated being able to to read that. And you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. How often are women given permission, right, to love what they love、right. and do? What they want to yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. And it's so forgiving. It's so permissive. And you just feel free after hearing that line, even though this is again coming from a total stranger. Yes. <laughs> But there's such comfort and luxury、mm-hmm. in that line. Well, the the beauty of your poem, which is so wonderful to me, is that it points a new generation to. The works of this wonderful woman.、Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a conduit. This here, this is my ode. Go and look at her work. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes, you know, I, I have a few poems where, well, I'm inspired by whatever I come in contact with. It's just having another perspective on something, and I just. Felt so gifted when I read that poem that I felt wow that death could bring us something so beautiful. When I had said before that it wasn't as intense as yours, it's because I didn't know her that her death doesn't affect me in that intense way that a mother would feel the loss of her son. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At the same time, even though it's my emotion was intense in the incredible relief and the happiness、mm-hmm. and the luxury. That I felt in just reading this poem, it opened me.、Mm-hmm. You know, we deal with death differently in this country than、mm-hmm. we do, and than they do in other countries. And death is something that we dispose of very quickly. Death is something that it's hushed. It's、mm-hmm. only recently that even that we begin to have hospice for people where we can kind of help them transition into the death that they know is coming. Right. But I think that in other countries, death is often right there in front of you.、Mm-hmm. Uh, you live multi generational a lot of right. times, and so.、Right. 
you're presented with the with these transitions and and it's different for us it is culturally i feel like and also because of all the technological advances that we have that's perpetually asking us to do everything faster and more take on more multitask do this we have all these tools in order to do more 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 and then just brush everything aside we have this thing of sweeping the past away as if they're just in the way whereas sometimes it's nice to look at even something as can be horrendous can be life changing for the people who survive as death if we pause to look at it to look at the possibilities to look at the lessons that we can learn you know going back to your poem about all of these deaths all of these unnecessary deaths that suck the potential out of our society all of these benefits we can no longer have because they are no longer there it's interesting to contrast death in these two poems mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I had chosen it because it's related on the same theme, but contrasts in the way that you feel afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I really love that you love this poem, this her poem as much as I do, and also I, I appreciate that you appreciated my poem. Well, when I read it, I just felt I had to read it several times because, like I said, the first couple of lines they draw you in. They drew me in. When you sit down with the piece, you don't know what you're going to get when you're、mm-hmm. when a piece comes to you.、Yeah. But this quickly, you know, it's that like, oh, let me get a cup of tea and cross <laughs> my leg and sit back and just feel the warmth of this poem wrapping its arms around me and cuddling me and and holding me and and supporting me. And that's how it felt. Thank you. Yeah, and that's how I felt when I wrote it. Her poem made me feel that. I feel like. We're doing a relay, hug relay, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, I could see that. And and then it just it took me, like I said, on this journey where I went to revisit the poets of my past that went to Maya Angelou. And、mm-hmm. it's really funny because the apostles in the Bible are also some of my favorite writers,、mm-hmm. just for the way that they write.、Mm-hmm. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is Your sting,、mm-hmm. just for the way that they、right. write. To Malcolm X, even who many would not consider a poet, but he rhymed. He used rhythms、yes. a lot when he was speaking. Yes, and what he said, how he said it, as you say,、mm-hmm. it was magnificent. I, although I never saw him、mm-hmm. hearing. Even over TV, just、right. you know, just hearing recordings, I love that. Yeah, and, and yeah. words well written, well placed, will do that. Yes, yes. Thank you. I think that's the thing about poets is that we love well placed words. We love juxtaposition of words that you don't necessarily see together in everyday life, and use that as a, our palette to paint pictures. And we paint so many pictures from the scream into Mr. Milo. All of these different pictures that we all paint using words. I feel like, in some ways, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a poet,、um, that we produce a synesthesia effect. Yes, I I definitely believe that. I think that we've demonstrated that just in here. Both of our poems、right. have visuals、yeah. using words. Right. Right, right, right.、Yeah. I I do so appreciate that. Going back to public health, certainly 
there's this social justice I'm angry piece in my poem, mm -hmm. but there's also kind of this social justice piece in your poem. I appreciate could not interrupt the relaying of the messages and insistent in its endurance for the light within has carried it far. Sue, so we all have this light. We all have this piece, this torch that we hand one to another. And I think that this is something that stands on its own or within a collection that can be used to inspire people to do whatever it is that their mission for what they're going to do. Thank you. I really appreciate that because I do write social justice poem and it didn't occur to me that this could be seen in that light. So I appreciate you pointing that out. I also want to point out that when I said the light within has carried afar, because I'm a bit of a science geek, I was also thinking about light used as a source of fuel because using light cells is something that NASA has investigated. I forget if they're actually using it now. I have to go back and read more NASA. So <laughs> it's it's been wonderful really to talk with you about both of our pieces. I understand you're doing you're doing something spectacular over February. Well, it's spectacular for me and I hope it will be spectacular for my listening audience. Sure I'm going to be in vagina monologues and there will be a link on your podcast. Yeah, we'll put it in the episode notes. Uh, but it's going to be February 9th and 10th mm -hmm. at the Phoenix Center for the Arts. Yes, and that's great. That's yeah. nearby, yeah. I will put that in the episode notes so that people can get tickets and go see it. I should probably do it myself since, as I said to you, I have, I've never seen the Regina monologues despite knowing it from pop culture. Right. So right. I think it's, it's about time I familiarize myself with this piece of pop culture. It's a dynamic production. Great, great. You said it was like, what, 15? Yeah, about 15 women, and they are speaking. Um, this piece was the vagina monologues, for many of you who know, it was written about 20 years ago, and it's a perspective of the vagina from 15 different perspectives. That's great. Yeah. That's wonderful. And how do we get in touch with you? How do fans get in touch with you? So um, my email address, which is how you can get in touch with me now, is baile.arena at yahoo.com, and that will also be on the notes. Yes, I will put that on the episode links as well. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show and spending your afternoon with me. I feel like we just need a tea, really. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well, thank you. You have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. And that concludes the Sunday, February 3rd episode of Poets and Muses. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Please follow us on SoundCloud and Instagram at Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter on the upper right-hand side of the SoundCloud Poets and Muses page. You can also follow me on Twitter at Imogen A-Rate. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a great week and look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.